Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm your host, Agus Ramirez. In this episode, we'll examine the Burmese women of the Kitkala, the women of the times, the it girls of colonial Burma. Beginning in the 1920s, they were seen in magazines, advertisements, and newspapers, a clear and controversial symbol of change that mirrors what other women went through in the Southeast Asian colonial period. The modern Burmese girl alone, not the modern Burmese lad, was portrayed as a willing culprit of imperialist, capitalist, and Western modernity. Chiikea, the modern Burmese woman, and the politics of fashion in colonial Burma. For several episodes now, we've been talking about how fashion has always been political. In Thailand, traditional clothing played an important role when showcased at the center of power. Dara Rasami, a Lao native, wore the textile pattern and garment styles of her hometown for cultural and political reasons when she arrived in Bangkok to become a consort of King Chulalongkorn. The regular episode on Urbunag and the bonus episode on Dara Rasami both discuss that. In the Philippines, fashion and pageantry were central to the formation of nationalism at the turn of the century. You can check out the three-part series on the Manila Carnival if you want to know more. Now, in this episode, we move on to 1900s Burma where we find women once again in a complicated predicament. A little context here. Burma was under British rule from 1824 to 1937, formally, and then in 1937, Britain separated Burma from India and made it a crown colony. They had a fully elected assembly with many powers given to the Burmese, but this was controversial because reforms happening in India weren't happening in Burma anymore. Then the war happened, the Japanese came in 1942, the British liberated Burma from the Japanese in 1945, and then finally became an independent country with UNU as prime minister in 1948. That's the short version of a very long story. Now we'll concentrate on the 20s and 30s, a transitional period that saw the rise of popular press, new forms of thinking, increasing Western influence in local language and culture, and of course, new fashion trends. Women's fashion experienced a big change, and this is what would come to be associated with the woman of the Kitkala, the woman of the times. What was iconic about her was the sheer blouse called the Ingipa. According to Chiikea, this was an extremely sheer muslin blouse fastened at the neck and down one side with detachable, ornate buttons. The signature characteristic of the blouse was its gossamer quality that exposed the corset-like lace bodice called Zar Pauli, which closely resembled European lingerie. So you're a Burmese woman in the 1920s, you have access to fashion, so you've got your corset-like lace bodice, you put the sheer blouse over it, you have your more traditional textile skirt paired underneath. What's next? You do your hair and makeup. Hair was typically worn in the crest hairstyle called amok, which was the pinnacle of modern fashion. According to Ikea, the crest referred to curly bangs piled high in the forehead, made possible by the early development of the perm. It reminds me of how silent film actresses did their hair. Think Mary Pickford or Jacqueline Logan. 
For makeup, they used tinted powders, blush, and lipstick. And then to complete the look, they would wear high heels and some jewelry, probably including a favorite watch. In the media, the woman of the Kitkala would be depicted in conversation with a similarly fashionable young man. Coming from a traditional society, this open interaction between sexes would seem like a modern development and would have probably scandalized a lot of people. Speaking of men, men's fashion also changed as they began to wear belts and shoes instead of slippers. They started cutting their hair, the English cut, which is cropped, instead of growing it long and coiling it at the top of the head. To be clear, this hybrid Western and traditional fashion sense wasn't only happening in Burma, it was also prevalent in India and Indonesia and Thailand, which is probably a country best known for this. Again, check out the episode on Herb Bunak's photographs of early 20th century Siam for more on that. It was a form of modernization that didn't fully imitate the colonizers, but it still, of course, drew plenty of criticism. According to IKEA, quote, As the public debate over whether a Burmese woman ought to wear the sheer blouse indicates, even hybrid outfits provoked accusations of sacrificing the pure and authentic self for an imitation of the foreign, unquote. Chi Ikea is the foremost scholar on this topic, and I highly suggest you get yourself a copy of her 2017 book, Refiguring Women, Colonialism, and Modernity in Burma. So it's the turn of the century, modernity in some senses of the word is coming to Burma, the modern Burmese woman splashes onto newspapers and magazines. And of course, again, like I said, this raised some eyebrows. In 1917, the anti-colonial daily newspaper Thuria began publishing cartoons and articles that accused the women who wore the sheer blouse of betraying the nation, basically. At the time, there was the rise of the Wuntanu, or patriots, and they said that women had a responsibility to the nation to uphold the traditions and values, and this sheer blouse situation they had going on was clearly the opposite of what they should have been doing. In 1919, approximately 300 elite women known as the Konmari, which was the leading women's nationalist organization, condemned the sheer blouse and imported garments in general. They began to wear these light brown, homespun cotton blouses and long yees or bottoms with designs originating in the western hill tracts of Burma. A long yi is a sheet of cloth that's sewn into a cylindrical shape and then it's worn around the waist and runs down to the feet. Side note, the Konmari was the first national women's organization, but there were others that followed, such as the Burmese Women's Union, the Burmese Women's National Council, the Burmese Women's Association, and Dama Thuka Association. I'm so sorry if I mispronounce any of the words. In 1927, the editor of the newspaper Bandula wrote a classical Burmese four stanza verse blaming Burmese women who wore the sheer blouse for inciting men to be excessively lustful. Apparently, this editor believed that reviving indigenous clothing will essentially save the souls of Burmese men and women. And it's always the women's problem, isn't it? But it wasn't just the men who had a problem with this. Okay, as mentioned, the women's nationalist organization Konmari criticized it, and so did the prominent female writer Ludu Dao Amar. She was actually just in her 20s when she began to write about fashion from a leftist perspective. See, what bothered Amar the most was that, according to her, the desire of modern women for a trendy Western lifestyle prompted them to choose their husbands on the basis of a man's wealth. 
She felt that young women equated progress and modernization to capitalism and consumerism. Amar, for her part at least, was less bothered by the so-called assault on tradition and was really more concerned about how capitalism was taking hold of Burmese society. Unsurprisingly, Ludu Dawamar became a prominent figure in the Marxist-Leninist student movements of the 1930s. She lived until 2008, by the way, passing away at age 92. The leftist movement felt that consumerism distracted modern women from the more pressing issues of politics and class. So basically, those were the two schools of thought here, the assault on tradition slash death of patriotism and the rise of capitalism brought about by a colonial mentality. But here's the thing. Women were not unpatriotic. Women were certainly not inactive in public affairs. There was a women's branch of every national organization and women were involved in anti-colonial protests. For example, In 1936, during a university boycott, 36 women students protested on the slopes of the Shwedagon Pagoda. They camped along with other male student strikers to protest the continued non-Burmese control of higher education. In 1938 to 1939, 200 women workers from Yekiao Ma Sin Nyun's Cherut factory and approximately 1,000 more from Tamaying Rope Factory and Rangoon's matchmaking factories joined students and other workers in the 11-month strike against the British oil company. Later, four female students undertook a hunger strike in protest of the imprisonment of workers who participated in the 1938-1939 workers' strike. So what was happening? Where is this superficial, unpatriotic, materialistic modern girl that the newspapers were all talking about? Another female writer, Mama Lee, wrote that the frivolous and self-indulgent modern woman was just a fabrication. She would become, later, the sole director, manager, and chief editor of the most popular journal in Burma after the Second World War. Incidentally, Mama Lee was known to be both very fashionable and very feminist, a woman after my own heart if I ever saw one. The reality on the ground was that a modern Burmese woman was definitely emerging, but she was maybe not encapsulated by popular media at the time. Between 1910 and 1930, women entered formal education largely due to the British introducing all-girls schools. The 1920s saw the rise of the first female doctors, lawyers, writers, educators, and government workers. In 1931, Dao Mia Sin, the first Burmese woman to graduate from Oxford University, attended the Burma Roundtable Conference in London to discuss Myanmar's partition from India. She was 27 years old at the time. She later led the Burma Women's Council. So all this is to say that the woman was much more visible, was gaining more political power, and was thus threatening the status quo in new ways. As you can guess, many felt that women earning their own money was emasculating to the men and bad for the family. So they were icons of modernity in various senses of the word and in more ways than what you could see on the fashionable surface. Also, despite all this, Burmese women didn't stop wearing the sheer blouse at all. The propaganda didn't work and the hybrid dressing trend continued. 
which brings us to the events of 1938. In 1938, the negative sentiment against the woman of the Kitkala reached its fever pitch. Young Buddhist monks, or Yahanbyo, began to collectively harass women. A group of Yahanbyos gathered at the Mahomuni Pagoda in Mandalay to set fire to bundles of sheer blouses. Similar incidents happened in cities near Mandalay where there were a lot of monks. And then, the British administration reported intense and physically violent incidents of Yahanbyos tearing off the blouses from the backs of women with hooks and scissors. If that image is odd to you, you're right. Monks should be non-violent and there should be no physical contact between monks and women. Chihikeya again says it best, quote, Kitsan fashion, especially the sheer blouse, had become a symbol of anxieties about the social mobility of young Burmese women and its potential effects on existing power relations, unquote. But all this tension and conflict and acts of violence didn't stop women's presence in public life. The change had already begun. Burmese women were granted the right to vote under British colonial rule in 1922. So, in the next decade, around the 1930s, women nationalists used the title Takinma. This was derived from the word Takin, meaning master. It used to be reserved for British colonial rulers. Male independence activists appropriated the word as an act of open defiance and called themselves Sakin, and the women, Takinma. After Burma gained independence in 1948, women also ran for office. For example, Nao Bamang Chain of Karen State became the first and only female cabinet minister in Burma, and Dao Ching Chi, the mother of pro-democracy leader Dao Aung San Suu Kyi, became an emissary to India and was the first and only female ambassador. These are just some of the names we'll be revisiting in a later season of this podcast. We'll also continue this discussion on the women of the Kitkala with a bonus episode on Ludu Dawamal and Mama Le, two women writers who gained prominence during the colonial period in Burma. Thank you for listening to Burmese Women of the Kitkala. Thank you to our patrons, Yati, Charlie, Shireen, Matt, Raymond, Christina, Jennifer, Xiaomei by Milish, Beverly, Lawrence, and Irene. Irene joined the Patreon just last month, so welcome, and I hope you're enjoying the additional content, especially the bonus episodes. We have an interview with Hadi Patra on the Minangkabao Matriarchal Society, Maying Tafan and the Crom Clone, Nyaigede Pinate, the Harbor Master of Gresik, Queen Suryothai and the War Elephants, Paz Marquez Benitez and Dead Stars, The Rise and Fall of the Achenese Queens, The Portrait of Dada Rasami, and The Women of Number 14, Libu Leaf. That last one's my personal favorite. If you want to join the Patreon, you can give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and of course, access to the bonus episodes I mentioned. I'm hoping to get to 10 bonus episodes before the year ends. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HerStoryCPod. That's HerStory, S-E-A, pod. There are so many more stories to tell and we're just getting started. This podcast was hosted and edited by Agas Ramirez. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again next time. Maraming salamat!